in the first season, we are going to be talking to different specialists in specialty areas, for example, in GI or DERM or GU. I want to talk to them about why their specialty is unique, and I want them to, to tell me that why, how they would convince a junior resident or a medical student to choose their specialty versus any other. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology as a medical specialty is misunderstood. We know this. Many pathologists and others have taken the lead in advocating for the field, but it's also important for the next generation of pathologists, the pathology residents, to learn about advocacy. My guest today is Dr. Abdul Abid. Right now, he's a surgical pathology fellow, but we're going to talk about his journey into pathology and how he found ways to advocate and get involved. And that includes his new podcast, Follow Your Path. All right, here's Dr. Abdul Abid. So I, I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning with you. Now, I know you're from Pakistan, and I want to kind of go back to back there. So can you tell me about kind of growing up in, in your country? And then how were you led to the, the path of becoming a doctor? Dennis, I feel like it was predestined in a way. I am a okay. third generation doctor. My oh. grandfather was an anesthesiologist. My father is a family practitioner. And I just wanted to be a better doctor. So I ended up in pathology. But in Pakistan, a lot of trades are sort of like family affairs in a way. And I am the firstborn child, so uh, I wasn't given an option, really. So <laughs> medicine was, in a way, thrust upon me. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that I have uh, any regrets, but it was decided almost before I could decide for myself that I'm going to be a doctor. Now, that that sounds like kind of a lot of pressure. I mean, how did how did that pressure feel? I mean, did you have the ever feel like sort of rebelling against that? Yes, uh, it was it was a lot of pressure. I when I was growing up, I went to a boarding school. My parents sent me to a, a boarding school, and I obviously that was an interesting experience living away from your parents at uh, when you were 13, 14 years of age, and having to sort of navigate uh, life among your peers and without having any family support per se. And I I was interested in computers a lot. And I thought maybe I could go into software engineering or coding or something like that at the time. But I eventually followed the path that was laid out for me and I, I like biology as well. Not that I hated biology, but I definitely was interested in computers and the work of computing itself. So there was some thought at, at some point that I could go that way, but I decided to pursue medicine eventually. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it seems like that sort of computer aspect, I mean, that's that's becoming a large part of pathology these days anyway. So it Maybe you were kind of prepared in, in advance without even knowing it uh, by by that interest. Yeah, you can, you can call it fate that I am currently mm-hmm. interested in digital pathology. And that is something that ties in with both my interest in pathology and in computing and coding. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. 
All right. So now uh, let's talk about your medical school experience. So this is it's still in Pakistan. And you mentioned, you know, your, your father and your grandfather and the specialties that they were in. Did you have any interest in those types of specialties or other ones? And then kind of uh, let's talk about how you got exposed to pathology. I got exposed to pathology in medical school and it was my favorite subject. I was particularly interested in learning about pathophysiology of diseases and pathology was where it was it was at. It was the way through which I could understand the pathophysiology. And when I was in medical school, I did not realize or it was not made clear to me by my faculty there that pathology is a career option in itself. I saw pathologists as, te- as teachers but not as something that you did for a living, like outside of teaching. Mm-hmm. So at the time, uh, the pathophysiology part of diseases, I thought that internal medicine would be a place where I could take that and sort of be uh, be it become part of my life, essentially. So in internal medicine, obviously, you get to do rounds and then you get to learn about all the diseases and how to manage those and everything. So when I was in medical school, when I graduated, that was what I wanted to do initially. And then I took some uh, entry-level exams in Pakistan to pursue a residency in internal medicine. And I did not make that because, as you can tell, I was interested in pathology more than in internal medicine. So at that time, uh, one of my father's friends talked to me and he told me, he asked me if I had ever considered a career in pathology. And I was a little, I was, I was, I was like, I don't know. I wasn't sure. And he told me that I should consider that seriously. And I did. And then I took the exam for pathology and I passed that in my first attempt. So that was how my path to pathology was essentially, it went do you think it was common at the other medical students around you at the time to think of pathology in that way as it was more like a teaching career and not necessarily a clinical career? I absolutely agree with that. None of my classmates at the time, when I knew, uh, when I was starting out in pathology, none of them went into pathology at the time. Some of them eventually, most of them were uh, who actually did end up in pathology after me were were females who got married and then after they got married they wanted to choose pathology because they thought it would have a good work-life balance so they even if they did choose pathology it was for more i would say lifestyle reasons and in my class of 150 there is one other male student uh, other than me who eventually chose pathology and now he's an attending uh, down in mississippi yeah. That's interesting. It seems like that would make for kind of, you know, like everybody talks about the shortage, whether now or kind of shortly in the future, shortage of pathologists. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that would be the case then in, in Pakistan yes. since, okay, hmm, that, that's interesting. All right. Now, you uh, eventually came to the U.S. then for pathology residency. Yes. And, and, I, and I want to talk about this for a little while because you you did a couple of observerships in I think two different places here in the U.S., and mm-hmm. then eventually ended up in residency in Texas. Yes. So first, now, not a pathologist. I didn't go to medical school, but I want to talk about what an observership is because I'm I'm not really clear on on what that is and how you get into those. Right. Uh, 
let's let's take it down uh let's take it back a little bit when i was in pakistan okay. and i did my i started doing a residency there uh in pakistan i did not finish it i did about eight or nine months of pathology residency there and i uh at the place where i was and i don't want to uh, i don't want to paint the whole country and the educational system in a bad light but the place mm-hmm. there where i was at i thought that the educational aspect of my residency was not being fulfilled necessarily and the training was not adequate and i wanted to pursue better training and more supervision and uh, a more structured environment and so i i that's why i pursued a residency eventually in the us and at the time i i was thinking of like getting out of pakistan and i had three places where i could go to like i could go to a lot of places but three places where a lot of people in my cohort could go to i could go to australia i could go to england or ireland or i could go to the us the us was the fastest way to get the best training so that was one of the reasons i chose the us versus the other english speaking countries and an observership is uh basically being at a place and just going uh just just going through the motions with someone like like watching someone do their work essentially and it is much more common in clinical medicine so in internal medicine or surgery people do observations all the time in pathology it is a little less i would say prevalent and which is a little bit of a problem for international medical graduates such as myself because when you're applying for a residency one of the questions that is asked or one of the expectations that programs have is that we would have some us clinical experience and the only way we can have us clinical experience is if we could get an observership at a with a practicing pathologist or at a us based hospital and there are very few formal mechanisms to do that so the first observership that i did was at a small community hospital in west virginia and i got there through one of my father's friends from medical school who was not a pathologist but he knew a pathologist there and he sort of connected me with that pathologist and i spent some time there and the second observership which i would say almost changed the course of my life was at md anderson in houston texas i emailed a lot of people to ask for observerships even for research if uh, i could i could get a research position somewhere uh, i would say the num it would number in about more like i would say more than 100 people i uh, emailed uh, right after i did my step 1 of usmle and, wow. and he was the only the, the guy at md anderson he was the only person to reply to me and uh dr maderos he is the head of hematopathology at md anderson and he wrote me a very short email but he said that yes i will i will will be able to accommodate you and that one email sort of like changed a lot of my life essentially so i'm thankful for him uh for him taking time to do that and uh, i ended up at md anderson for my second observership in houston and that was where i met resident who was rotating there from this place called utmb university of texas medical branch in galveston and he asked me the resident asked me if i had heard about the program or 
if I would be applying there for residency. And I had never heard of that program. So I was like, uh, he encouraged me to go to Galveston, which is about an hour south of Houston, and visit the place and maybe meet some people there so that when I'm applying for residency, it will be easier for me. So I did do follow his advice and I went there and uh, people there were very encouraging and uh, I applied for an observership there as well. However, it never panned out, but I ended up staying in Galveston for about a month and that's where I met my wife. And uh, then I just ended up staying in Galveston for the next two years. And then we moved to Houston while I was in the middle of my residency. So, so doing these observerships coming to the U.S., was this your first time outside of Pakistan? Mm, no, I had been to the U.S. before. So okay. part of the story that I have not told you is that when I was in medical school, I uh, got burnt out a lot. And by my final year of medical school, I just did not want to be a doctor anymore. I was depressed and I just wanted to be done with it, with mm-hmm. medicine, essentially. Uh, I'm not sure like how and why that happened. I'm sure a lot of people get burnt out. So I'm not the only one who, who did that. And I have always had an interest in, in history and in, I would say, writing or journalism. So I started writing blogs for first for my own blog, and then eventually I got published in some newspapers in Pakistan. So when once I finished my uh, medical school, I started focusing more on the journalism side of my life and less on the medicine side of my life. And as I was selected for an exchange program to come to the U.S. in 2012. That was the first time I came to the U.S. for about three weeks. And it was called the Emerging Leaders of Pakistan Fellowship. And that was the first time I came to the U.S. The second time I came as part of a as, as part of a group of people who came from Pakistan to take part in a summer camp in Maine for another three weeks. It was in 2015. Uh, there's a organization called Seeds of Peace, and they gather high school students from India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and Egypt, and the U.S. for three weeks at this summer camp, and they teach them how to talk to the other side, essentially. And I came as one of the chaperones from Pakistan for that. So, I mean, we talked about the computer interest earlier, Mm -hmm. and this is you know, you've got the writing skills now, mm-hmm. which of course are, you know, important as, as a, you know, pathologist. And now you've got what you were just talking about, sort of the, what was it called? Seeds, seeds of peace, seeds of peace, seeds of peace. Se- yeah. Se- seeds of peace. Yeah. And just being, being able to have a discussion mm-hmm. um, and kind of see the other side yeah. of, uh, you know, of, of sort of a, not an argument, but I guess a, an, an issue. Mm-hmm. So that's another that's another good skill to learn. So you're amassing all these <laughs> yeah. skills together, which is which is very interesting. And I think that all that all is very useful uh, in medicine and in pathology mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. I okay. Agree. All right. So so you've been to U- U.S. a couple of times before you started the observership. I was going to ask you if there was like some kind of culture shock or, so, or something like that. I mean, so you're you're in Texas. Mm-hmm. I was kind of yeah. I was in Texas, and uh, the fir- uh, the first time I went to Texas was for my observership. Before that, I had been to other states. Okay. During my first visit, I went to I, I spent time in New York, D.C., 
a little bit in Atlanta and then in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. the second time I came, I was in Maine. And uh, right. before my observerships, I was in briefly in New York with uh, some of my relatives. And then I was okay. in West Virginia, which was which was definitely a culture shock by itself. Oh, wh- why is that? It, it was a beautiful place. It is a okay. beautiful place, but I was not, uh, I would say, exposed to the rural part of the U.S. necessarily. Oh, sure. And it was, it, it, it felt like it, like almost like ghost towns in a way, like very few people and like beautiful scenery, but not a lot of like life, like human life there. All, people were definitely friendly, contrary to some people's perception. I, I did not face any issues there in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But it it was definitely surreal. It was it was a completely different experience from let's say being in New York or DC uh, or San Francisco. Um, it it was it was different. And then Houston was Houston actually felt to me a little bit like home, like Pakistan, because the weather is kind of warm as it was where oh, yeah. I grew up okay. in Pakistan. Um, and there's like it, it's flat. Uh, similar to where I grew up again, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of diversity, a lot of good food. The traffic is terrible, same uh, same as in Pakistan. So it reminded me of home in a way, and uh, I, I I was definitely not. Uh, I did not feel too too distant from home while I was in Houston. Okay, okay, that makes sense. I can understand that. So during the, the your residency, then. What kind of pathology subspecialties were you, were you thinking about going into? I I have always liked GI pathology, and I still like GI pathology. And something that I was interested in while I was a resident, another thing that I was exposed to specialty was um, breast pathology. I enjoyed learning about it, and I I was not the biggest fan of the grossing of uh, too, too many breasts but looking okay. at the slides was was i really like that i remember i think one of my probably one of my longest cases was a breast case and i did about 150 sections oh, wow. so that was a lot of slides to look at yeah <laughs> yeah so there was that i i did have exposure to a lot of gyn as well so breast gyn and gi those were three things that i enjoyed doing okay okay that, that makes sense i kind of I, I think I can relate to to most of that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing, and I saw you you've written about this. So while while you were in Texas, you got involved with the Texas Society of Pathologists. Yes. And I'm curious. First, first of all, why did you uh, why did you want to get involved with this organization? Right. So when I was in Pakistan, as you may have as you have noticed that I, I was writing and I was involved in some some peace activism as well mm-hmm. and journalism so i was i was doing like i was i was an activist in pakistan and when i came to the us i felt this like need to fulfill that particular void in my life and i think that is where organized medicine came in and texas society of pathologists which is a very active state society compared to other uh, states state pathology societies uh, that gave me an opportunity to be a part of a part of them and uh, i slowly gradually from rose from the the lowest rung on the ladder to like higher rungs and i started off as a liaison to my program from the dsp 
And what what DSP does is it tries to engage with all the residency programs within Texas, and there are a few. And they ask people in these programs to send them interesting cases, so photos and then a brief description, and then they post them on Twitter. And they do that all year round, like every year. It, it just keeps on happening. And I would send the cases from my institution. Eventually, I ended up becoming the chair of that committee that that manages that in my second year. But TSP, I felt that it was uh, doing a lot of good work. It was advocating on behalf of the pathologists in Texas. And it was also giving opportunity to young pathologists or junior residents such as myself to see what was going on. As a liaison, I had the opportunity to attend board meetings of DSP. So I could see what the board was doing and the kind of challenges they were dealing with and the decisions they were doing and the the major issues that pathology faces on, on a major level, not just on a small residency level, but as a specialty. I was able to see what they were doing there and definitely I was interested in that. So I got involved in that. I was, uh, I went to, they also have something called a a retreat for residents every year in San Antonio. And I went to those, I went to their annual meetings. It was a wonderful experience getting started in organized medicine through uh, Texas Society of Pathologists. Have you uh, like encouraged other people to get involved with their, not only Texas, but their, whatever state they happen to be in their sort of state society? Is that something you're, because, because it seems like this kind of quenched your thirst for the activism part. And are you sort of kind of like spreading that message, I guess, if that makes sense? Yes, sir. I am working on a module for Uh, Uh bathelective.com. It's called Succeeding in Residency. And one of the videos on in that module that I recorded recently, it's called Introduction to Organized Medicine. And I talk about different organizations, not just the DSP, but not just local organizations, state organizations, but also national organizations and what each of them does and uh, what leadership positions are available there and how you can benefit from joining those organizations. So I recently recorded that and it will be available to medical students and junior residents pretty soon. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. And that kind of leads me to the next question. I mean, you also got involved with the, the CAP residence forum. So first of all, can you, can you tell me like, what is the residence forum? And then uh, I want to kind of get into how you got involved with it. Right. So a residence forum is the CAP giving every residency program in the U S and Canada an opportunity to send their representatives who are called delegates to this forum called the Residence Forum. It meets twice a year, once just before the US CAP annual meeting and once before the CAP annual meeting. And in that meeting, the Residence Forum Executive Committee, which is the elected body that is elected by the delegates, they schedule a program in which the topics that are emerging topics or that are of interest to residents, they are discussed. So so what is the job market like or how to improve your wellness as a resident or how to improve your financial literacy? Like these are some examples which the resident the RFEC or the Residents Forum Executive Committee has planned events during the uh, during those sessions, and I was part of that, as as, um, as as you've mentioned. So I was part of the executive committee, and we 
did programming for for residents twice a year. So I got involved by uh, running for directly running for the RFEC. And the reason why I ran for the RFEC was because I had in my program Adam Booth, who is now an attending in Northwestern in Chicago. He mm-hmm. was very active in organized medicine, and he was actually the, the running for the chair of RFEC. And in one of the interviews that he did at the time that I remember, he one of his advice to young pathologists, young pathology residents was to run for anything that you can, essentially to gain more experience in leadership positions. So I took his advice and I ran. And the first time I ran was when I was a first year resident and I did not win. But the second time uh, in my second year, I was more experienced and I was more prepared and I did win the election. So I was the digital strategy liaison for my first year. And as the digital strategy liaison, I was responsible for improving the at the time we were doing a revamp of the residents website for the CAP. So I took a took a lead in that. I worked with the CAP staff and we revamped the website and it is much more interactive now and has much more helpful links and stuff now compared to five years ago. So that was my first year. And as a, in my second year, I was the vice chair. I was elected as a vice chair. And as a vice chair, I had different responsibilities. I was part of different subcommittees that basically uh, discussed how to improve resident participation with the residents forum, essentially. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Abdul Abid. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Abdul Abid on the People of Pathology podcast. As we've been going along, we've sort of been talking about this kind of skill set that you're amassing. So here's another one you're talking about leadership skills. Yes. Okay. And and I like that idea that you mentioned of, uh, you know, coming from, from Dr. Booth that, that just apply and, you know, run for any position to get that kind of experience. I like, I like the idea of that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would actually second uh, Dr. Booth's advice that I think I have benefited from that in the last, w- during my residency and even now, that anytime that there is a chance to be on a committee, I and I obviously within time constraints, I don't want people to just be involved in that. I want them to mm-hmm. be able to continue their education and anytime that they can spare to also learn the skills of being in a committee, to see how a committee works, and 
you gain a lot from being on different committees. You you because basically you are on the same table as your attendings essentially. So you get to see how they are doing things, and you can obviously absorb and learn from them. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you you mentioned that there were two kind of annual uh, meetings of the residence forum. Now, as be, so being part of the executive committee, were you, did you have a role in kind of planning these meetings? Yes. The, the, one of the main things that RFEC members do is to plan those meetings and execute them as well. Uh, during the meetings, RFEC members are either hosting the sessions or they're introducing people or because I did, I did like live interviews with people on stage uh, while I was a member of the RFEC. I also did a session myself that was encouraging residents to be more active in advocacy because uh, that is something that when you're a resident, you are concerned about your residency. You want to be a better pathologist, and that is completely understandable. But what usually people don't do is to think about the broader perspective of the specialty in general. and the issues that the broader pathology world is facing and how you, even as a resident, can contribute to that. So, for example, you can contribute to the political action committee that CAP has, or you could be part of other advocacy efforts for, by different organizations. So Texas Society of Pathology also has an advocacy uh, corner, and ASCP has advocacy efforts that residents can take part in, and state societies have their own uh, advocacy efforts. So my belief is that residents should get more involved in those efforts as well, because a lot of the money that pathologists earn comes from the federal government, and the policy that is made on that level affects our work in our day-to-day lives. And if we don't get involved, then we are going to be left behind. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, I, so I, I, I work with residents and they seem very busy just with the day-to-day activities of, of you know, being a pathology resident. Like how do you, you know, doing the, the advocacy and getting involved in committees, like I guess, like, how would you recommend they sort of find the time to, to do those things? Right. I mean, some some of that is time management. And I know it it is very hard and it can also become very tiring. And I completely, that's why my advice was not to not to ignore your uh, residency to, to do these things, but to try to try to find time to complement these. A lot of the things, a lot of the meetings for committees and stuff are on the weekends, thankfully. So, and they are specifically on the weekend so that you can, you don't, your, your work week does not get disturbed, essentially. Some of the advocacy stuff, I mean, you can probably take a day off in, for example, the CAP does this thing called the Pathology Leadership Summit in May, where people go and meet their congressmen on Capitol Hill. So that's a two-day thing. So I'm pretty sure every pathology resident can take two days off in May every year. Like there is no compulsion that uh, you have to be at your residency program every single day of every single year. So there's definitely some time that you can take off. And um, I'm not saying that everyone should, but if I, I still, my advice is to look at those uh, little areas where you can spend time doing these things. Okay, I see. You're uh, kind of in the middle of a surgical pathology fellowship, so you're in Pennsylvania now. Yes. 
All right. So tell me, tell me about this experience so far in, in your fellowship. So a surgical pathology fellowship uh, works in different ways. And while I was in residency, we also had a surgical pathology fellowship at my program there. And at UTMB in Galveston, the surgical pathology fellows did did like four or five uh, organ uh, organs a day, essentially. So they were divided into like, for example, one day or one week, one fellow would do breast, GYN, and GU. And the other fellow would do the rest. And then the next week they would switch. Here, uh, because I'm at a bigger program, they have a lot more volume and it's not possible to do all of these things in, in like one week. So at the University of Pittsburgh, I get to do three weeks of organ system at a time. So I could I did three weeks of ENT, I did three weeks of thoracic, three weeks of term. Then I'm going to do three weeks in GU, three weeks in BST. So it's a little different that way. And right now I am I, I will be starting my BST, so bone soft tissue next week, essentially. Okay, and now I know we we talked about when you were uh, starting residency, like which subspecialties you were interested in. Is that still the case now, having done done some of these kind of more in depth in a, a surge path fellowship? I actually have haven't gotten to my favorites yet, but mm-hmm. I definitely look forward to to getting more experience in that. And obviously, since it's, it is a bigger program, it has a larger volume. I get to see a very interesting cases and stuff that I had not seen during my residency. And I think that is why I opted to do a fellowship like this to to basically broaden my horizons, to see more cases, to get more comfortable. Uh, signing out cases when I am a pathologist so that I've had more exposure. Okay, that makes sense. And and to do it in a larger institution like that, that, Mm -hmm. yeah, to get more exposure to a wider variety of of cases. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. All right, and then following this, you're going to be doing a cytopathology fellowship. Yes, sir. I will be doing a cytopathology fellowship. Uh, I actually got... I, I consider myself a little unlucky that I got exposed to cytopathology later in my residency. Like I did not do my first cytopathology rotation until the end of my third year. Usually people apply for their first fellowships at the end of their second year. So I did not have the opportunity to even do cyto before I could apply for a fellowship. So that is why I applied for a second fellowship because I liked cytology. Mm-hmm. And I like cytopathology because I think it is sort of like the first response team of pathology. Like a lot of times, the many tumors are diagnosed by cytopathologists because they get the needle biopsies from radiologists and they can diagnose them on a small needle biopsy or on smears versus surgical pathologists who get the tissue when it is resected later on. So cyto is... Uh, it's it's a very interesting skill, and I want to learn more about it, and that is why I opted to do a cytopathology fellowship at the University of Virginia Charlottesville. It's also one of the kind of the rare parts of pathology that has kind of a public uh, public facing or patient facing part to it. Yes, uh, is that what did that have an influence on your uh, wanting wanting to do it as well? I would say some of that, yes. The fact that you get to interact with with patients at times and obviously with uh, other doctors, although there are other specialties, for example, in transfusion medicine, you also get to interact with patients. And that was not a hindrance to my training or uh, there is this misconception that pathologists don't like interacting with patients. And I don't think that is the case. Mm -hmm. And um, 
but one of the, I would say yes, it affected my preference for cytopathology, but it was not the only reason why uh, I chose that. It, it seems like you've got an interest in pathology education, and that's certainly come up in some of the things we've talked about so far. I mean, and you, and you know, you use Twitter as a teaching tool as well. And I'm curious how you got interested in in education because it sounds like it, this goes back to maybe when you were uh, involved with the Texas Society of Pathology, or, or does it go even you know earlier than that? So teaching, I've always been interested in teaching. Even when I was a medical student back in Pakistan, I was interested okay. in teaching. So uh, that is something that has continued with me uh, through my residency and then now my fellowship. Uh, Twitter came later, obviously. Uh, I believe DSP was, as you mentioned, that was the first time that I could share cases or, or provide education uh, through Twitter. So DSP gave me an opportunity to do that. And I tried to continue doing that. And recently I have been posting more cases, more, some of my interesting cases that I sort of uh, collected during my residency and my fellowship. I have been sharing them on Twitter as an education, as an educational tool, obviously. I have also been using a new tool called Kiko XP, and that allows me to upload a digital slide instead of just an image that can, which is the case for Twitter, where you can only upload a static image. I could mm -hmm. upload a digital slide and ask people to, to make a diagnosis or tell me what the diagnosis is, which is more important because in our boards and more increasingly, even in practice, digital pathology is becoming common, commonly used. So uh, I think... Uh, the ability to share digital slides is, is important for teaching purposes and learning purposes as well. Well, since you mentioned the digital pathology aspect, I mean, kind of what, you, what are your thoughts on that as far as where that's, where, where do you think that's going to go in the future? Do you think it's going to replace uh, microscopes? Honestly, I think some, at some places it already has. Uh, I was mm -hmm. recently talking okay. to someone at uh, Ohio State University and they are a second year resident and they said that they have never used a microscope oh, to wow. diagnose cases. Yeah. So I was like, wow. I was amazed at that because in Pakistan, I, I learned how to navigate a microscope while I was doing my pathology residency. And then here as well, like throughout my years, although later, uh, I would say about fourth year time when I was here at UTMB, uh, we started doing a lot more digital and I got used to that. And it was, it was, I, I thought it was, it was very convenient, especially for bigger cases where you have to look at like a hundred slides or so. It is easier to navigate uh, on a digital slide versus on glass slides. But I still wasn't expecting that there are programs in the U.S. where they don't do any microscopy. So I think it is going to be slow, but it is going to be gradual. And digital pathology is, firstly, it'll go towards more uh, academic institutions. And eventually, once it can be proven that it increases efficiency of pathologists, and I I believe that it does, but this, this is my personal belief. So obviously, it, it'll take a lot more studying and a lot more experience for people to do. Once that it is established and once more people and more residents who go into practice are familiar with digital pathology, I think it'll become the norm, essentially. And we may lose our microscopy skills. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see. I, 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 I tend to agree with with what you're saying there. I know you you've got a, a podcast yourself. Yes, sir. All right, so let's talk about that. How 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 and how how and why did you start that? Right. So uh, my podcast, which is going to be available pretty soon, is called Follow Your Path. And it is essentially a set of interviews. In the first season, we are going to be talking to different specialists in specialty areas, for example, in GI or DERM or GU. I want to talk to them about why their specialty is unique. And I want them to, to tell me that why, how they would convince a junior resident or a medical student to choose their specialty versus any other. Oh, that's that's an interesting uh, point of view. I, yeah, because so like so this, the reason why, and I've had this idea for years, is because a lot of people, including myself, have trouble choosing specialties for fellowships, and the pressure to choose a fellowship for a junior resident is immense. Like there is a lot of this pressure from your faculty, and like there's, there's this expectation that oh, you have to do a fellowship or two fellowships or how many. Uh, that may be. But people keep asking you, oh, so what do you like? And as a first-year resident who is like one month in, you have no idea what, what to choose, essentially, because like it is natural that how would you know the intricacies of everything? And because what you choose as your fellowship, you probably will end up doing that for the rest of your life. So it is a major decision. And uh, people do not have necessary exposure. So to kind of bridge that gap, obviously, it, it it is not going to replace the what is currently happening that you actually have to do a rotation in that specialty. But to just to kind of bridge that gap, I wanted to do this podcast. I've had people mention to me, and I I'm going to sort of paraphrase the quote, but it's something like, "You don't choose like your your uh, subspecialty based on your own interest. It's based on the interests of those around you or or the mentors that you happen to have." with the program that you're in is that does that make sense i I would i would definitely agree with that i think the having good mentors and good teachers it affects a lot and about your decision to do a fellowship um and because i had some like my I, i absolutely loved the attendings in gi and gu and gyn at my program and that's why i like those specialties more than the others not that the other people are bad it's just that i was exposed to better teachers and uh, they taught me in a much more, um, I would say, efficient way or or I mm-hmm. felt that I was more comfortable with them. That okay. was why I liked those specialties more than the others. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes yeah. sense. All right. So uh, you, you, when can we expect uh, to, to start listening to this podcast? Oh, pretty soon. Pretty soon. The, the first episode is actually not going to be on that. The first episode is based on uh, me and my co-host are going to talk about some misconceptions about pathology as a specialty. So uh, we wrote an article, which will, which is going to be published by Medscape soon, about the need for uh, pathology to be seen and respected as a field of medicine. And the first episode is going to be about that, essentially. And okay. then after that, we are going to be talking to different specialists. Okay, I like that. That's a that's a good place to start. I've I've done an episode or two, uh, kind of about that topic as well. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Great. Okay. Yeah, and if you don't mind, can I ask you a few questions now? Okay. All right. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna turn the tables here. And <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. Okay, that is. So, why did you choose 
your career as a pathology assistant. What was the decision point when you chose to become a pathologist assistant? Like, when were you exposed to pathology first? Okay, I, I kind of fell into this field, I, I, I say, by, by accident. So what happened is I, I got a degree in biology in college and eventually ended up as a lab assistant in a histology department in a hospital here uh, where I live. And I didn't really know much about it. At the time, I wanted to get into microbiology, like like human biology. It was it just didn't interest me, really. But I, I needed a job. So I was working in a histology department, and I started watching what was, ha- what was happening around me. There was a PA there at the time, um, and I was working with her and watching what she was doing and then asking questions. Why are you doing that? What are you looking for here? Those kinds of things. And it just, it was fascinating to me. And I, and I loved what I was seeing and I wanted to do it. At that time, you could learn the pathologist assistant job. You could learn on the job and get certified that way. It was uh, three years you had to train to do that. So, so that's what I did. Um, the, the PA, she started teaching me how to do certain things. And then the there was a pathologist at the time who kind of got behind my, my training and sort of took me under his wing. And uh, we kind of made sort of an informal kind of program, I guess, of the things that I needed to learn. And it just went from there. And I just, you know, I, I loved what I was doing and, and I, and I still love it to this day. So it was kind of just, I, I guess, being in the right place at the right time. Wow. That's a, that's a wonderful story. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful story. So about this podcast, when did you decide to just, to start this podcast was there a particular conversation or a personality that led to it yes there so this was probably summer of 2019 i was having a, a conversation actually uh another pa that i met over twitter and we were kind of messaging each other talking about different podcasts that we liked and there was one in particular that we both loved and so we're talking about that and then i said something about you know there aren't any podcasts for people that work in the lab, for people that work in pathology. And and she agreed. And, and she, so she said, well, you should start one. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, whatever. And she said, well, well listen, yeah, I'm writing a book. Why don't you, you can interview me as sort of practice for your podcast. I thought, okay. So I started researching like, you know, what do you, what kind of equipment do you need? What, how do you upload the files, where do you, ho- you know, the hosting and all of that stuff. And I realized that it wasn't that complicated and it wasn't that expensive, really. I mean, these days, you know, because podcasting is so popular, there's, you know, a, a hundred different ways you can do these things and the microphones aren't that expensive and, and things like that. So I, so I got the equipment that I needed and we, and we uh, did the interview and then I listened to it and it sounded terrible because I didn't know what I was doing. So, so we did it again and it sounded a, a little bit better, but not great. But, and that became the the first episode of the podcast. And then I started, you know, you mentioned Twitter earlier. I started reaching out to people on Twitter and then eventually on LinkedIn and other places. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to want to talk to me on, on a podcast that they've never heard of. But everybody was like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's do it. And it just kind of grew from there. And now people that I've interviewed are introducing me to other people and they go, oh, this is someone else I know that'd be very interesting that you should talk to. So it's kind of, it's kind of happening that way. And and it's really grown and, and I, and I love it. And I've met, and I talked to so many 
different and interesting people and I keep learning things myself. So it's great. It's, it's very rewarding uh, for me as well. I love that story. I, I love the fact that you were able to start just like because there was room to grow and you definitely have done a great job. So now coming back to you as a PA, what is your favorite organ to grow? All right, this is an easy one. It's placentas. It's placentas all day long. And every, all the other PAs that I work with, they know this. And in fact, I'll be going to work uh, right after we talk this morning. And they like to leave all the placentas for me. And, I, and I'll do them happily all day long if, if, if I can. Uh, I would say second is GYN specimens. I like those a lot. But definitely placentas are, are my favorite thing. Oh, wow. I'm actually... I when I was training in my residency, a lot of people did not like looking at placentas, but I did. I, I okay. really like looking at placentas, and I, I am fascinated by placentas. And when my son was born, I was very much tempted to get placenta from my wife and like do a gross and do that, but it was just a lot of was going on, so I did not end up doing that. Sure. But I have I, we are we are both placenta enthusiasts, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then that's rare, as I understand it. Yeah. Even among PAs, yeah. there's a lot of PAs yes. that, that would rather do anything but yeah. placentas. But I, I love them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so little uh, so I I want to know one of a secret from you. So what do you wish pathologists and pathology residents knew about your work that they don't? Mm, okay, so this one and it's not every pathologist and it's not every pathology resident but you know there's kind of a less of an emphasis on among like residents mostly but of learning how to gross mm -hmm. and it's you know because there are so many pas now and there's more and more of us in more places so i think the uh, perception is they don't really need to learn how to gross because we're going to do it for them yeah but my uh attitude toward that is you know if you if you don't know how to do the gross and you don't know what, you know, kind of the method of how to do it, you're not going to understand what you're looking what, or what you're seeing on the slide as far right. as far what the margin is and, and the, you know, the way it was cut and, and, and things like mm -hmm. that. So I yeah. think I wish there was more of an emphasis on grossing and just, you know, how important it is because that's one of those things. I mean, it's really at the beginning of the process. And if it's not done correctly, everything that comes after it, it really doesn't matter that much. You can't correct something that was, uh, you know, messed up at the beginning. So that that's, that's what I would say for that. Right. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I have seen cases where grossing dictated everything that happened after. So it is, it is a skill that, I think pathology residents should definitely, I, I know it's hard. I know it's hard sometimes mm -hmm. and doing the same thing over and over again can, can be painful at times for pathology residents because we also have to look at slides and we also have to do other stuff. But I think it is definitely important to learn, to learn the importance of grossing and to learn grossing as well. Because when you go into practice, there are sometimes you don't have BAs or... Right. Even if you have PAs, sometimes you need to you need to know things about grossing while you're looking at microscopy. So it goes, uh, it has to, it is a full picture that you're seeing, not just 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 the slides. So yeah, I completely endorse your message. Yeah. So my last question: um, If you had to pitch a high school student on becoming a PA, what would you say? Okay, this is interesting because we had a high school student come and shadow where I work uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And what I say is, 
I see interesting things every single day. And I feel like most people in most jobs can't say that. (laughs) Definitely not every day, but sometimes not ever. And so we showed her a lot of the interesting things that we get to see. I mean, I work at a large academic medical center, so we see a lot of complicated cases. And I think she was really blown away with just this sort of intricacy of some of the anatomy of some of the specimens. And I I showed her a Whipple case. We looked at a prostatectomy, uh, a placenta, of course. And it was so, so I think it's just, if, if you want to be, if you want to see interesting things all of the time and you want to kind of have to act, sort of be actively engaged with what you're doing, because you have to constantly be thinking, you know, this isn't, pathology is not kind of one of those mindless jobs. You have to be, you have to be thinking and kind of utilizing the knowledge that you have in order to do the job. And then along those lines, I mean, there's, there, you know, as we go along, there are constantly new things to learn, which I I like that part as well, because you've never, you never get to the end. It's never like I've learned all these things and that's it. I know everything. There's constantly more things. And that's certainly the case coming into digital pathology and, you know, AI and all this stuff that's coming in the future. Yep, I, I agree with you. It's a it's a very thinking profession. Yeah, both sides, like for pathologists, for residents, for PAs, everyone involved has to be has to be constantly like mindful of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, thank you very much for answering my question. No, thank you, Doctor B. This has been super interesting. I'm I'm really glad we we're able to talk, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, your your podcast as well, uh, Doctor Abdul Abid. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Dennis, for having me. Great big thanks to Dr. Abdul Abid. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. But besides that, I also realized that I did not feel like surgery was for me. I was more interested in the diagnostic portion of medicine. Like I really loved to be able to like diagnose is what I was kind of going for, which is hard in surgery. Like for me, when I was originally entering surgery and and fun fact when i initially went into medical school i wanted to do family medicine i wanted to go in and and go in do family medicine and be like all right like this is what i was doing and then i did clinic and i was like i'm not a family medicine doctor i was so much more interested in pathophysiology and and, and come up with diagnosis and i was like that's where i feel like heading i thought surgery was that way of doing that but it was actually pathology and so i was able to take a elective with the, patho- the pathology department at the University of Buffalo. And they opened me with buckle arms and they were so like gracious and amazing. And I said, yeah, this is it. So midway, this was, I think September is when I did this elective. I was like, yep. So I, I got recommendation letters and applied to pathology and the history has written itself out. To hear more from Dr. Michael Williams, including the origin of his podcast, Diversify in Path, check out episode 79. All right, so I hope you enjoyed how we kind of switched places there at the end, and Dr. Abed had the opportunity to ask me a few questions. I think he asked some really great questions, and if you want to hear more of that, the Follow Your Path podcast is available already. So I definitely recommend as you check that out, you can listen to Dr. Abed and his co-host, Meredith Herman, who is a medical student as they talk with pathologists already working in the field about their various subspecialties. And I think the big lesson from this conversation today is that of advocacy. 
And like I said at the beginning, pathology is misunderstood, and the only people that are going to stick up for our field are those of us that work in the field. And Dr. Abed gave a lot of good examples today of how a resident or even a medical student could get involved in pathology organizations, and you can help advocate for the field and even learn some new skills for yourself. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.